to fix the housing crises, we need to do some big things. We need to do them as quickly as possible. And the longer they take, then the sooner we've got to get going and stop wishing for a magic wand from government or anybody else to fix something that took decades to mess up. You're listening to Elevate, the official podcast of Elite Agent for real estate industry sales professionals, property managers and leaders. With thanks to our partner Connect Now, Elevate brings you the best tools, thinking and strategies to elevate your results. To get access to all of Elite Agent's premium resources, including a detailed episode guide for this podcast, visit joineliteagent.com. And for more information about how Connect Now can make moving easier on your clients, visit connectnow.com.au. Here is your host, Samantha McLean. Hey, hey, everyone. It's Sam here. It has long been the great Australian dream to own your own home and, if you're lucky, purchase an investment property or two. But is that dream getting further and further out of reach? And if it is eluding more Aussies than usual, why is that the case and what needs to happen to turn it around? A man with some important views on the issue is today's guest on the Elevate podcast. He's also a tech and social entrepreneur, a property investor, and the co-founder and executive chair of Longview, an integrated residential property management business. So Evan Thornley, welcome to the show. Good to see you again, Sam. Thank you. I think the last time I saw you was on one of our street MBA tours. They were the best education, especially for someone who was relatively new to the industry to meet, you know top practitioners around the country and colleagues. And, um, you know, we really don't compete with each other. So we shared things openly and we made some good friendships and we continue to work with, you know, a range of the best players around the country. And thank you. Yeah, amazing. And you've got a very interesting business and I want to get onto that in a moment, but I've covered a little bit in the intro and you have been in the news a bit recently, but could we just fill some of our listeners in on your background? Because it's quite varied and interesting including starting Australia's first NASDAQ-listed company. Yeah, so look, I'm a recovering lawyer by training, so I finished a law degree and never practised. I went into management consulting at McKinsey & Company, and that's probably one of the great business finishing schools in the world, so I learned a lot there. But then I became a tech entrepreneur, so I built the first Australian tech company to be listed on NASDAQ and you know, got it to 14 billion in market cap, which was real money in those days. <laughs> so before the word tech unicorn existed, we were the first tech unicorn in Australia. So that was a long time ago now, you know, 23 years ago. So I've done a lot of startup businesses, but also nonprofits. So I think probably the thing I'm most proud of is being one of the co-founders with Michael Trail of the Good Start Consortium that bought out ABC Childcare and turned it into a social enterprise. So it's now the biggest social enterprise in the country and call us crazy, but focuses on the well-being of the kids rather than trying to make money. And it does that really well. Yeah, I've built a bunch of different businesses and nonprofits over the years from public policy think tanks to electric car charge networks. But the last seven years I've spent in residential property. And we began by trying to fix what we saw as a problem with how badly rental property management was done. And as we felt we were starting to do that well, I uh, wandered off unsupervised with a spreadsheet one summer and analysed the investment performance of our clients' properties. I mean, we didn't sell them to them. We didn't buy them for them. We just inherited those properties to help our clients manage them. And what we discovered was mind-boggling, which was that 
on average, they were getting 2.8% less capital growth than the housing market average. And that may not sound like a lot, but when the housing market average is 7% and you're getting 4.2 on average, then that's the difference between doubling every 10 years and doubling every 16 years. So that's a pretty big difference and a pretty big deficit. And, you know, I mean, we manage 4,300 rental properties across Melbourne and Brisbane. So we're a pretty representative sample of the market. So we realized that a lot of property investors are not being successful as property investors. And it's great that we help them manage those properties really well. We have terrific NPS scores from both our landlords and our tenants. But if they've bought the wrong assets, they're never going to make proper money. So then we moved into buyer's advisory so that we could help people buy the right properties. And then we put a data science team together. It's analyzed every sale price of every individual property in Australia for 50 years to work out where you can get capital growth and where you can't. And now that we can buy well and manage well, we're moving into deploying capital well and starting a funds management business and creating some investment funds in residential property. So that's the evolution of Longview over the last seven years. It's amazing. Look, I remember you kind of popped up on my radar. I think it was about five years ago. I remember we did a story in the magazine about how you use data to guarantee rent. Yeah. You know, which was quite groundbreaking at the time. So if that's what you do unsupervised with a spreadsheet, that's pretty (laughs) interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, I guess coming from Silicon Valley, we're not so much about tech as we are about data. You know, and the great thing about residential property is there's a lot of high quality data out there. So you can make really well-informed decisions. And it's always surprising to me, given how much money's at stake, you know, the average property investor, you know, well, people's homes are typically million-dollar assets and people's investment properties are typically six, $700,000 assets at least. How much money is at stake? How rarely people are able to make decisions informed by the very good data that actually exists. So we're trying to change that. Yeah, interesting. I wouldn't mind getting into that a bit later, but I did mm. mention at the top of the show, you know, we're here today to chat about that great Australian dream of owning your own yeah. home. Because recently, again, you sort of cropped up on my radar because in conjunction with PEXI, you've released a bunch of white papers on the Australian housing crisis. So fill me in a little bit on how you came to be working with PEXA on that. Yeah, well, look, I got to know Glenn King at PEXA. You know, obviously, they're the e-conveyancing giant. They're a huge part of the residential property ecosystem. And, you know, we shared a concern about what was happening in housing affordability. And we were doing quite a lot of work to understand how the housing market really works because our view was, and my long experience in these things in government and in McKinsey and in Silicon Valley is unless you understand, really understand the economics of a situation, you will not come up with solutions that work. You can come up with all sorts of ideas that sound great, but if they're trying to swim against the tide of what the underlying economics are driving, they don't work. So we started realizing that what was driving Australian house prices was different than what most people thought. So anyway, we worked together with PECSA to to try and put some groundbreaking material out there to really set the stage of understanding what is actually the cause of the problem? Because we can't solve it unless we correctly understand the cause. And a lot of things that people talk about as being the key factors in driving Australian house prices, it's not that they have no impact. It's just that one of the skills I learned at McKinsey was to separate a big number from a small number. (laughs) And most of the stuff people talk about is the small numbers. 
And the stuff that really drives Australian house prices, the big number on the page is not what everyone thinks. It's not interest rates. It's not negative gearing. It's not Chinese money. It's not supply side stuff. All the stuff that gallons of ink is spilt on every day in the newspapers. What drives Australian house prices is we have the second highest population growth rate in the world and have had since before any of us were born. And we have close to the highest urban concentration rate in the world outside sort of city states like Singapore or Monaco. You have more Australians living in less cities than almost anywhere else in the world. We have more than half the country living in just three cities. So if the population is growing really fast and the majority of them are going to just three places, then the value of land in the suburbs of those cities is going to keep going up. In fact, the value of land in those cities has been doubling every eight years for 80 years. So unless we think we're going to change those things, and not many people are advocating that we should, and I'm not, being a high population growth economy is central to a lot of our economic well-being, then we have to accept that a consequence of that is that we're going to have rapidly growing land prices and that that's going to flow through into property prices depending on how much land is involved in the property. Interesting. So what do you make at the moment of the core logic headlines that are sort of, you know, a bit scary? So scary, in fact, that, you know, there's people in the real estate industry that are trying to make them less scary. But obviously prices are declining at the moment after we had the crazy COVID boom and all the rest of it. What do you make of this period and how long do you think it might last? Yeah, and I think, you know, there's a reason we called our company Longview. Right? <laughs> Property is a long game. I mean, look, there's a few people who maybe have learned how to make money flipping houses. Uh, apart from people that are on TV shows doing it, I don't see that much of that. You know, just stamp duty alone kills you, right? Most people who make money in property do so because they buy a good asset and hold it for a sustained period. And when you zoom out and look at the long view, actually the rise of property prices has been inexorable, steady and constant. There's just little blips, a little bit up, a little bit down. If you compare that, say, with the stock market, it has huge fluctuations. You know, every 10 or 15 years, there's a stock market crash. And when we say crash, we mean crash, right? The stock market goes down somewhere between 40 and 70%, often almost overnight. Property prices in Australia have never gone peak to trough more than 12% there, right? Over a two-year period, that was actually from late 2017 to the election in 2019. Even with everything that's going on now with interest rates, national average house prices have gone down, I think, 8%. They may go down a little bit more, although the latest couple of months of data is actually suggesting that that may have bottomed, at least in quite a number of markets. So even with a massive change in interest rates, most markets haven't even given up the gains they made in COVID. So when you look at the long-term graph, it's pretty clear. When you look at really short-term graphs, it looks like it's moving a lot. But if you kind of zoom out a bit, it isn't so much. And so, you know, I'm not in the business of predicting what happens to house prices in the next six months. And I think, frankly, it's a fool's errand when people do try and do that. But I am in the business of predicting what happens to house prices in the next 10 years. And in particular, I'm in the business of working out which houses and which properties are going to get that capital growth and which ones aren't. It turns out that it matters a lot more what you buy than when you buy it. 
Everybody is focused on, am I buying at the right time? Did I get it at the bottom of the market? A much more important question is, did I buy the right property? Is this one that's going to double in eight or nine years? Or is it not going to double for 20 years? Or is it a new built apartment that might go backwards for 10 years, right? Like there's massive differences between properties that are much more important than what happens in the property market overall. Yeah. Actually, you just reminded me of, you know, when you talked about predicting property prices, and I always quote Mark McLeod on this one, there are people that don't know the future and don't know they don't know the future. Yeah, totally. Someone who, you know, often pops his head up in Australia with the gloom and doom as well as a guy by the name of Harry Dent, who I'm sure you've heard of. I haven't seen him pop his head up recently, but it seems like one of those times when someone like him might. But you don't think the long view, there we go, I'm quoting you now, is anything like something that he might suggest. I think what we know for certain, and you and I have been around long enough and many of your audience have been, to see that history is littered with people who've called a top to the Australian property market (laughs) and they've all been wrong. And the point of the white paper that Pexer and Longview put out is to say, let's understand why, okay? And if you understand that it's driven by land value and that land value is driven by population growth, then you understand why all the predictions that are driven by other things that turn out not to be the main thing are always wrong. This is why the bank economists are always wrong. All the bank economists think everything is driven by interest rates and borrowing power, right? We in the real estate industry know that if a vendor doesn't want to sell, they won't sell, right? And if they're not distressed, they won't sell. So if they don't like the prices, they don't sell. It doesn't matter whether the borrowers have got less money, right? As a leading buying advisory firm, we know that if our client's budget is diminished, they're not buying the same property they were trying to buy for 15% less. It ain't for sale for 15% less. We're going to help them buy a different and sadly not a quite as nice property. So all the stuff that's put together by the bank economists has been consistently, I mean, they have been consistently, magnificently, consistently wrong, right? Because they misunderstand what drives Australian house prices. And, you know, in the same way as many of my Dear friends who are concerned about housing affordability and feel like negative gearing is the villain, if we only got rid of that, everything would be fixed. Even the think tanks that advocate for the removal of negative gearing can see that if you did that, you'd have a once-off impact of somewhere between 1% and 2%. In something that's growing 7% per annum, right? So I'm not saying I'm not advocating one way or another on negative gearing. What I'm saying is that's one of the small numbers on the page. And compared to the impact of population, it just doesn't matter. It's just mathematically close to irrelevant. And so one of the other stats that a lot of these doomsayers look at is the ratio of household incomes to property prices. And they say, it's been getting worse and worse and worse. It's a bubble. Well, my friends, it's been getting worse for 100 years. If it's a bubble, it's a mighty long one, right? And if you look at some of the most concentrated real estate markets in the world in central London or downtown Manhattan, those ratios have been getting worse for 300 years. So it may be that that's not the right predictor (laughs) of what's driving property prices because people who make predictions on the basis of those variables are consistently wrong. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people that I've had on this show have sort of agreed with you on one thing, probably not the population thing because that's taking it up another level to you know, people talking about the supply crisis in general, let's say, 
it's not that, you know, it's something that's just all of a sudden cropped up. This is something that has been happening for, you know, like 100 years. Forever. Yeah, but supply is another good example. We've got to separate the supply and demand for dwellings from the supply and demand for land. They have different impacts. And where the supply and demand for dwellings really impacts prices is more in the rental market. If there's a shortage of supply in the rental market, there's not enough dwellings. And tragically, that's where we are in Australia now, probably going into the worst rental crisis in a generation because we are short of supply and therefore rental prices are going through the roof and it's having a catastrophic impact on many of our renters and their families. But the argument that a greater supply of dwellings will diminish the price of houses is simply wrong. It doesn't happen because what's driving the price of houses is the value of the land underneath them. And the more you're doing development, actually, the more valuable the land becomes. So that's an argument the development industry often uses to get their agenda up, which is, you know, a free up zoning and stuff like that. And again, I'm not here to advocate for or against that. But anyone who says if we just build more houses, they'll be cheaper to buy, thinks that it's a supply and demand for dwellings rather than a supply and demand for land, what's driving those houses and their values. Yeah. So we'll leave some links to the white paper in the show notes, but I just wanted to sort of dig in into a few more little aspects of that with you while we've got you here. With declining purchase affordability, what do you think this will mean for homeowners trying to enter the market in the future? Well, Again, if I take a long view, let's look at what's really happened. In our grandparents' generation, or perhaps their parents' generation, people would sometimes save money for some number of years and buy a house for cash. Then gradually, mortgages became more prevalent. And as house prices rose, families, usually single-income families, could service a mortgage and buy a house with a mortgage with a single income. By our generation, you needed often two incomes in the household to be able to service the mortgage, and that's getting harder and harder. The reality is now that for most of the people who are buying their first home, they need two incomes and a mortgage and some equity from someone else, usually the thing we call the bank of mum and dad. Right? So people increasingly, if you haven't got two incomes and a large mortgage, and some equity from either the bank of mum and dad or increasingly the government shared equity schemes or shortly shared equity from commercial providers like Longview, it's going to become almost impossible to be able to compete with the people who do. And that's just the trajectory of if you've got 100 years of house prices rising faster than incomes, you've had 100 years of the evolution of what people need to do to afford to buy a home. And unfortunately, I don't see how that is going to change. And so we're really already in the generation where you need your own equity plus someone else's equity plus two incomes to service a big mortgage. It's really hard. And I wish I could tell people that there were other solutions, but I don't see them. What do you think that the flow on effects will be of more people not being able to afford to buy? Because, you know, we've got a rental market that's in crisis at the moment as it is. So how do you see that playing out? I suspect that over the long term, We won't have too much of a diminishment in the number of people who can afford to buy, but what we'll have is an increase in the number of those people who are getting some of the equity they need from somewhere else, mainly their parents, increasingly from government and then from people like Longview in shared equity. So we're just changing the way people can afford, but over time we are still seeing a a gradual diminishment of the total number of people who can ever afford to buy a home, 
and certainly how long they have to wait to be able to get the deposit and get the income to do so. And so, you know, it is going to put more pressure on the rental market. And that is where the supply issues are most critical because if we don't build enough supply, you know, we're at 0.9% vacancy rates in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane right now, down from two and a half, three percent a year and a half ago. We'll probably be at half a percent vacancy rate by the middle of the year. You know, that's 50 people per open territory. You know, that, that's a disaster. And nothing anyone can do now will stop that. That's the result of decades of mismanagement and it will take it minimum two or three years for the supply side to catch up. And you can't fix something that took decades to mess up overnight. I'll give you a few analogies because I think everyone wants the solution to the housing crisis now. It's not going to happen. It's like, you know, Melbourne's going to spend the next 20 years building a suburban rail loop to fix a public transport system that should have been fixed 50 years ago. Now, the fact that it's going to take 20 years to build it is not exciting to people. But if we didn't start now, it'd take even longer. We've got to fix the energy crisis in this country and we've had inaction for 15 years. So it's going to take a while for that to happen. But I'll give you a contrasting example. 40 years ago, a bunch of visionary people said, let's fix the retirement income system in this country. And they've created close to the best superannuation system in the world. It's not perfect and we're all debating it now. But some visionary people started that 40 years ago and now we have a secure retirement available for the majority of Australians as a result of that. So to fix the housing crises, we need to do some big things. We need to do them as quickly as possible. And the longer they take them, the sooner we've got to get going and stop wishing for a magic wand from government or anybody else to fix something that took decades to mess up. Yeah, it puts our government in a very tricky position, right? Let's just say I'm uh, Prime Minister Albanese's Chief of Staff and I've just picked up the phone, ring, ring, Evan. Prime Minister wants to meet with you about what we can do now. What would you say? Well, I'd say two things. I would say let's talk about what we can ever do to fix the problem because part of the reason we are where we are is people have tried to find short-term fixes for 20 years and none of them have worked. Whereas if we'd start on stuff that could have worked 20 years ago, we'd be there. So we've got to start by working on stuff that could work. And then the only thing you can do is try and work out if you could accelerate the natural course of that. So they're kind of getting there, right? They realise that government alone cannot fix this problem. The amount of money needed for the amount of housing we need is simply too big for government budgets by you know, a factor of 100. So you've got to find a way of liberating private capital to solve this problem. That's why they're talking to the superannuation funds. But I think there's another source of private capital that can help solve the problem, which is actually bigger than the superannuation funds, at least the amount of available capital is, and that's Australia's landlords. There's a tick under $3 trillion in total in the entire superannuation system, and that's got to be invested in shares in Australia and overseas, equity and infrastructure and a whole bunch of things, commercial property. Some small portion of it may end up in residential property. Almost none of it is now, which itself is crazy. But even if you've got 5 or 10% of the super system, that would be one-tenth as much money as Australia's landlords already have invested, but it's invested in the wrong way. So I think what we're interested in doing is creating a system where landlords can get a better return on their investment and we can build more affordable housing because that's the only way you're going to get enough money to fix the problem. And we haven't released our third white paper yet. We'll be doing that in May, but that'll outline a, a little more how we think that works. Now, I think that's a process that builds over a 20-year period. It doesn't mean you get nothing for 20 years, but it'll build over a 20-year period. 
There may be things government can do to accelerate that process, but there's no magic wand you can wave to solve a problem that takes hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars to fix. It strikes me too that part of the conversation the industry has been having, certainly with government from state to state, is about private landlords and the narrative about the big bad landlord versus the poor tenant. You know, from the people that I've talked to, and I mean, obviously I talk to a lot of people in the industry, it seems that what people are saying is that with changes in legislation, make it less attractive. Like if I'm an investor, I could put the money in the bank and then I can do whatever I like with it the next day within reason because I'm in control of my asset as an investor. Whereas if I put it into an investment property, I'm literally no longer really in control of that due to it being somebody's home, et cetera, et cetera. Is there any way to make it more attractive for investors to come back? Because what I'm hearing from people is that investors are actually leaving the market, not wanting to come in. Yeah, I'm in danger of preempting our second white paper, which we'll launch in a couple of weeks, which talks about the entire rental system and what's wrong with it. But I'll give you a bit of a spoiler alert. Why is this the only country in the world where there aren't large-scale funds that you can invest in? So you can invest in a fund than invest in residential property rather than just in an individual property, right? Why is this the only country in the world that doesn't have those type of funds? Because what that means is that your investment you talk about is tied to a single home that has people living in it. And anything that you need to do with your investment will impact the people living in the home. And that doesn't make you a bad person. 71% of landlords own one investment property. It's usually their large asset outside their own family home. And so, of course, they need to be able to do the things they need to do. But the problem is that it's someone else's home. And so the Australian system is uniquely fragmented in the ownership of those homes. There's millions and millions of landlords who own a single property. Each one of those millions of landlords needs the ability to be able to manage the property. They have their own limitations on how much they can afford if there's a big maintenance issue, et cetera. So in systems where people can invest in a fund, they can buy and sell units in the fund separate to what's happening with buying and selling the properties and or who's living in those homes. So if you separate the financial flows from the assets and the occupancy, then people can have more degrees of freedom and the needs of the investors, the landlords in this case, can be met separately from the needs of the tenants. So this argument that it's all about tilting the playing field one way or another between landlords and tenants, it's not a good system for either of them, right? So for as long as we have the system we have, it's going to be unsatisfactory for tenants and also unsatisfactory for landlords. We've analysed our landlords' investment performance. Two-thirds of them would have been better off putting money into super because they bought the wrong assets. And then when they buy the wrong assets and they're not making the money they thought they wanted, then they try and squeeze it out of the tenant or squeeze it out of doing the maintenance and stuff to make up for the fact that they're not getting the capital growth they could have got because somebody tricked them into buying the wrong asset. So that system's not working for anybody. And so we think you need to create a new system. That's kind of a big call. But you know, anyone who wants to argue that the current system is okay, Please do. But for 50 years, it's been getting worse. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone is happily dissatisfied, aren't they? You're right. Both sides 
doesn't really we'll, work. We'll rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic. We'll tilt the boat to the landlord, then we'll tilt the boat to the tenant. Neither of them are doing well, right? Who's doing well out of the current system? Let's take a lot of what happens, okay? A huge proportion of the landlords I see have bought an off-the-plan apartment, okay? And they've been sold some bill of goods by a developer that it's going to double in value because property doubles in value. Well, on average, property doubles in value, but new-build apartments almost always uh, barely move in value, right? And so, well, that doesn't work out for them. And so three or four years in, they want to sell and they can't get much more for it than what they paid off and they get less, okay? And then the tenants have got to be tipped out because the landlord's selling. So who has that helped? The landlord has made little to no return on their investment. The tenants getting messed around, they get squeezed on the rent, squeezed on the maintenance and then have to get kicked out. Who made all the money? Well, the developers on average make a 20% return on equity. They're doing just fine. The sales agents often get paid two or three times the commission to flog developer product than they do for existing homes. So they're doing just fine. The banks will lend you money on anything, whether it's a good, bad or a different asset. They don't care as long as you pay them back. They'll happily give you money to buy a rubbish asset. So the banks are making out, the sales agents are making out, the developers are making out, and the losers are the landlords and the tenants. So if people are looking for villains in this, it's not that the villains are the landlords and the tenants are the victims. They're both victims of a system that's not working for either. Yeah. So given we are where we are and you're an agency owner as well, there'll be plenty of agency owners listening to this. What do you think is the general impact on business for agents or agency owners in the foreseeable next couple of years? Well, I think the interesting thing when we talk about agencies, obviously we're a property management and investment agency. Most agencies are principally sales agents. And of course, what that means for them is that actually the thing that really drives their business is not so much prices or affordability or any of those things, but volume of transactions. And so at the time when prices are coming off, as we discussed, volumes of transactions are going down, and that's a very tough time for the sales principles of those agencies. As the interest rate cycle turns and the prices start going up again, we'll see an increase in volume of transactions and all the agencies will be happier again that the transactions are going and as prices start to rise, then vendors will get more interested and we'll go through that cycle. So, I mean, I think that cycle of how much volume of transactions there is in the market is a cycle that any agency principal who's been around for a decade or more, you know, you just kind of know that that's the cycle. And I don't think there's much that anyone can do to impact the cycle about the volume of transactions. But if that was me, let's just say you and I were having a drink in a bar and you say, what's your business, Sam? And I go, well, my business primarily sales and it's crap at the moment. You know, and then you say to me, what about property management? And I'm like, oh, too hard. And like you said, me as that principal in that character, you know, I'm probably going to go through another few peaks and troughs. So are we saying here that, you know, now is the time to really look hard at different business models in real estate? Well, I mean, you've got two choices, right? You can live with that cycle and make money in the good times and batten down the hatches in the hard times. That's what agency principals have been doing for three generations. Or you can try and get a business model that is less exposed to that cycle. And obviously, property management is a much more stable business because it's not driven by volume of transactions. So it's a very, very stable business. But as everyone knows, it's hard work. 
And if you're going to focus on property management or have a bigger impact on property management, then you have to be committed to it. And that's why we started Longview in the first place, because what we saw was an industry that was almost exclusively owned by sales principals and property management was treated as the poor cousin. And it, you can't have something that you rely on as your stability and cash flow and yet treat it with no respect, treat your property managers with no respect. It's such a tough job being a property manager. Refuse to invest in high-quality software. You know, if you're going to treat it as a poor relation, then it's not going to be the source of stability that you need. But the challenge is then you've got to put real time and effort and care into property management. And unfortunately, as an industry, you see, I'm biased, but that's why we started our company. And, you know, we, we've grown to 4,300 properties in seven years. So there must be some truth in what I'm saying. I'll go further than that. Uh, I'm very passionate about this. This is a service business. There is no road to customer satisfaction that doesn't drive through staff satisfaction first. You know, Longview set out to be the employer of choice for the best property managers in the country because unless you have the best and most experienced property managers, you will not deliver the best service. And in order to attract and retain those people, you actually have to care about them and how their work managed. And you have to build an organisation that focuses on really delivering a quality work experience for some very highly trained professionals with decades of experience as property managers. And if you don't people treat those people as valued professionals, if you treat them as, as I've heard so many times in this industry, the girls out the back, as they're often referred to, then you won't have that. You know, you can't get the benefits of the property management business without giving it the respect it deserves. Yeah. We live in very interesting times right now. And actually, sorry, just before we sort of finish on that piece, like I know that there is a third white paper to be released later this year, which is going to look into the solutions in more depth and maybe we can kind of circle back and have it once that one comes out. But I know you were sort of around during, like I was at Cisco during the dot bomb back in 2000. So I sort of think, you know, I've had more than a passing interest in technology, which is why I sought you out in the first place, because I know you do too. And it is an interesting time we live in at the moment with the explosion of AI tools and people trying to lower their cost bases in interesting ways in the real estate industry and things like that. So I just kind of want to circle back to, you know, how you said you were dangerous with, you know, with the Google Sheet. What sort of impact do you think, you know, something like chat GPT or the proliferation of AI tools is going to have on the industry? Yeah, actually, we're trying to work that through at the moment. We just had a meeting with our executive leadership group to ask actually exactly that question. And I guess to give a bit of context, having been in Silicon Valley for a long time, I see fashion trends going through the technology world all the time. Every couple of years, something else is the new hot technology. You know, I'm old enough to remember something no one's even heard of anymore called push technology, which sometime around 1997, 98 was all the venture guys wanted to invest in, right? And you go through all these waves of things and, you know, last mile delivery services, right? And crypto and blockchain and all these things. I've seen a gazillion fashion trends in technology, but over the last three decades, about once every seven or eight years, I see something that actually I'm like, oh, wow, this is going to change the world. And I mean, I was a McKinsey consultant when I first saw the first Netscape browser and I quit my job six weeks later. And once the internet moved to point and click, it was clear to me that the whole world was going to change and it did. I took my first drive of an electric car in 2007 and it was clear to me that they're going to be faster, quieter, cheaper and greener. But most of the stuff that gets all the hype, it may be important and it has impact, but not so much. 
I got to say, when I got on ChatGPT a few weeks after it was released and there was a lot of buzz, I spent five minutes with this thing and I'm like, oh, yeah, no, this is another one of those moments. So I do think generative AI is the real deal. And we're just starting to think about when you can get a quality of written work that is better than 80 or 90% of humans can write, you know, you start thinking about, I mean, in our business, a whole lot of things about how do we manage the interactions with our landlords and our tenants, at least over standard form things in ways that don't require everybody to be doing everything manually all the time. That's going to be significant. I think there are probably much more radical uses. Honestly, I don't have an answer yet, but I do think this one is a big one. And, you know, favorite adage everyone has at the moment is it's okay. You won't lose your job to chat GPT. You'll lose your job to someone else who's using chat GPT. <laughs> and as an owner, I think it's okay. Your agency won't cease to exist because chat GPT takes it over, but it may cease to exist because other agencies using chat GPT have taken it over, but I'm not quite sure how, but I think it's just such a broad ranging technology when, you know, you can use generative AI to create visual images that you didn't exist. You can use chat GPT to write computer code itself, debugged computer code, right? You can use it to write a letter to a client. So it's such a broad ranging technology. That I think we'll end up having quite practical applications for ordinary people, which is us in the real estate industry. So I think it's one that people are going to need to pay attention to. Well, we will definitely need to catch up again in the very near future. So first of all, I want to thank you today for coming on and sharing some of that white paper. I know that there are a lot of agents in their cars right now who listen to this stuff and will probably go back and have a look and download that. So it's fantastic. And thank you for sharing some of your wisdom in the other ways. It's been invaluable. If there was one thing that you'd like to leave or one piece of advice that you'd like to leave everyone with, what would it be? Yeah. Well, Samantha, thanks for the opportunity. I think it was actually the thing I talked about most recently. Look after your property management team. Their job's getting harder and harder and harder. They are the ballast that keeps your boat afloat. They're the cash flow that keeps you in business. They're the source of a lot of the leads for your business. And if you continue to treat them poorly, then you will, you know, people leaving the industry in droves because the work is just too hard and a lot of the regulation and other things is making it harder. So that's my plea. I think it's a self-interest plea to agency principals. I think you'll find you run a better business if you really respect and look after your property management teams. But if you don't want to, that's fine because we're happy to keep taking that business off you. (laughs) Absolutely. Evan Thornley, thank you so much. Thanks very much, Samantha. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Elevate podcast with thanks to connectnow.com.au. Don't forget to get access to all of Elite Agent's premium resources, including a detailed episode guide for this podcast. Visit joineliteagent.com.